You are listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine, and I am one of the pastors here at Shady Grove. I'm joined by three other guests today. On my right, I have senior pastor Charlie Bale. Uh, in front of me, we also have uh, ruling elder Scott Melson, and we also have Tammy Jones here with us uh, today. And so you've heard from each of them in previous weeks, and we've heard from Scott and Tammy with their testimony and hearing about their passion for the church, and we're really glad that they're with us um, today. So we're going to be jumping into Mark chapter 6 in just a minute, and uh, today we're going to start off with a little bit of a different question for everybody, and uh, that is uh, thinking through one of the major themes of the Gospel of Mark that we have seen is that to be a disciple of Jesus means living a life that is with Jesus. We've been seeing that throughout, uh, and we mentioned even in uh, chapter 3, for example, was one place where this stood out when uh, Jesus called the 12, and it said he called them to be with him. But we've seen also this contrast of insiders who are with Jesus and outsiders who stand apart from him. So this reoccurring theme of living life with Jesus as a disciple. And so what I wanted to ask each of you today, just as a question for reflection as we're opening up here, is uh, how have you during these COVID and quarantine months, which have been just so funky and difficult for each of us in so many unique ways, um, how have you been growing in your understanding and practice of what it means to live life with Jesus? How have you been growing in your understanding of living life with Jesus. And so, uh, Tammy, why don't we start with you on this one? When I read this, I kind of feel like it's actually what I learned it wasn't living mm. with Jesus because of all the activities that were shut down and all the ways that I would say I felt Jesus at church. I felt Jesus when I studied or I felt the presence of God in the in the singing in our congregation and all those things that were stripped away um, kind of redefined for me, you know, he's still here. And, um, but I, I see the Holy spirit work in, in my, um, this is kind of off topic maybe, but I, I saw my awareness of sin and my mm. tendency to just, because I wasn't feeling all the things that I usually felt because of being with, you know, in the typical Jesus places. Mm -hmm. um, so then I saw the Holy Spirit work, revealed sin to me. And in that way, I felt Jesus because, of course, he was still the same. Um, but it was kind of it kind of took some time. Do you, mm -hmm. It was it because it was so different mm -hmm. for, for me. Yeah, that's not at all off topic, by the way. <laughs> so we would hope, you know, spending life with Jesus, he reveals our sin to us, but tenderly, right? And uh, kind of grabbing hold of us even more. So yeah, I think a lot of people listening can probably relate to that when the activities are stripped away, where, where and how, you know, what does it really look like to live life with Jesus? And I think that's maybe a new question that a lot of us have uh, been asking. Scott, how about you? You and your family, what does that look like for you? Sure. So uh, probably uh, pretty common um, struggles that, that we're having in our house with the uh, the new COVID pandemic is that you're around people much more than you normally are. <laughs> and uh, you're around them in different circumstances that you're not perhaps used to. Uh, so we actually pulled our kids out of uh, 
FCPS and we're doing homeschool. Uh, it was a train wreck, virtual learning. It still is, I hear from our friends, uh, but homeschool, uh, it's it's been a different chaos. I'm not mm-hmm. sure it's actually at the end of the day easier than what it was with virtual learning uh, with four kids in one room. Um, but, uh, Melanie is taking that head on. So I really, I can't claim any credit for any kind of, uh, effort here, but she's taking it on and I'm sitting working from home, uh, in a room over and I hear, uh, different noises throughout the day. Uh, so I, I think for myself, um, that's raised stress levels around the house, uh, obviously. Um, and then when I get done with work at the end of the day, I come in and it's kind of like, uh, you know, I hear medic being cried everywhere. So, uh, I'm really learning more. Not that I, uh, not that I don't have this sense outside of the pandemic, uh, but even more so now with heightened tensions, stress, uh, emotions, feelings in the house, just a real need, a greater need, I guess, uh, just for the Lord to to give me strength in dealing with my wife, uh, my kids, uh, and just um, not that I didn't already know it, but just impressed upon me more uh, how much I can't do and how how the need for Christ uh, to support and give me grace and to um, to really bless our efforts as parents and uh, in, in the lives of our kids because uh, you know there's just. I can try all I want to get things across or to deal with them or try to train them in certain ways, but it's, it's in the Lord's hands. So, yeah. 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 I mean, you guys, um, you waiting for your new house and everything moved into a small apartment, like right before this all hit. And I mean, I just, sometimes when we meet, I just, I can't imagine. I'm like, how are you? I already, you know, I have two. And we have a yard and everything, but I know you guys have space for the kids to run and play outside the apartment complex and everything. But I'm just like, man, that's hard. That's got to be so hard for you all. And man, well, Scott's learned how to jog, so he's been jogging. So just to get out of the house for a little bit there. (laughs) Scott uh, informed us before we started recording (laughs) that he runs six miles a day. And Scott, you're not you're not 29 anymore. All right, just take care of yourself. Okay, (laughs) just take care of yourself. Uh, all right. Well, uh, Charlie, uh, really glad you're here. You know, we didn't know if you'd be able to make it today. Uh, I imagine this is a question that's, uh, hits home for you right now and your family, uh, going through the loss of, uh, your dad and working through your family with that. So how have you through quarantine, but even recently, uh, grown in your own awareness of life with Jesus? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm I'm kind of used to sharing all of these passages of scripture of with people, other people, and their funerals or memorial services or gravesides, and now they've really kind of become a reality for me in, in yeah. a in a new way and in a profound way. That it's very comforting that just the resurrection of Christ is what other worldview can account for death and death is really the the great sucker punch and i've never really had somebody that i would say i was really close to die and Mm -hmm. my dad and i were close and but we've known this was coming i mean and we've talked about it just numerous times very candidly and even the last week was able to read just about every passage that i could think of that to encourage him um but for me, I think 
it's it's okay to be weak. I thought last Sunday's message was really appropriate. It was something I really needed to hear. I've so appreciated people, basically, in my role to give encouragement, people are very encouraging. They've sent me lots of notes and emails and cards, and that's been very encouraging to know that people are praying for you. Um, a couple of the passages that have really kind of helped me, just Romans 14, whether we live or we die, we are the Lord's, and that he's Lord of the dead, Lord of the living. And then in First Thessalonians 4, the familiar passage that we we don't grieve as, as those who have no hope, and that one Christ since we believe that Christ died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep and we will be reunited with our loved ones. This is not the end. And so that is greatly um, comforting and gives confidence that it's like this great weight, but there's there's a buoy and the, the, this, the boat floats because of the resurrection and we can get through this. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for sharing that. And, um, you know, when this podcast comes out, it'll have been a few days after memorial services and everything for your family. But if you're listening, uh, you know, Charlie, love, love his family and just encourage you to keep praying uh, for them and encouraging them and uh, being there for them. Uh, for me, you know, thinking about this question, uh, I had a few thoughts that came to mind. And one of the, I think, um, probably the strongest emotions and things I've been processing through that have been leading me back to Christ is, um, I guess, I think every pastor and probably every, you know, public facing person in any kind of public facing occupation struggles with, you know, finding their righteousness in their performance and, you know, being upfront and all that and measuring your righteousness, measuring your productivity, uh, by these things. And then that's, increased for me by my own perfectionist tendencies. Um, and so that can, you know, when you don't meet your own expectations, um, can lead to a lot of feelings of, uh, feelings of shame. And so I think that for me has been something because, well, I've really been fighting this from two extremes because on the one hand, I feel like, and I know this isn't true, but because it looks so different for me now, I feel like my productivity is dead in the water and like how I normally would do things or would want to be doing things or where I would want to be putting my time and attention is no longer the case. And so, you know, ministry hasn't at all looked like how I wanted it to look like. Uh, I tend to have, you know, many of you listening know this, like I tend to have a strong communal emphasis. I like to think through community things. We like to do hospitality at our house and outreach and these things. And it's like, you can't do any of that. Like, what do you, what, what does that look like now? Right. And so all of a sudden, you know, that's hard and, you know, not that we ever really had a set schedule here at the church where everyone was in at the time or like crossing paths, but like, yeah, now like our schedules are so different and I'm, I'm here at the church, but it, you know, Bruce is here at a later time than I am. And so I don't really see him anymore. I don't see Charlie as much, you know? And so all of a sudden it just feels very isolated. My productivity feels like, again, dead in the water and it can feel very like shaming, which again is a lot of, a lot of self-induced. And so really struggling with that and really struggling with, you know, where do, where is my righteousness really found? Where is my sense of worth really found? Is it in ministry and these things? But on the other hand, right? Like having the inflated sense of worth uh, and struggling with that has been, you know, um, quarantine has also blessed me with this 
really wild opportunity to be on Oprah two times, which was like completely crazy and completely like, you know, and all of a sudden now I'm focusing my time and attention on that. And it's easy to like think, you know, you can get into your head of like, look at me, right? Like I'm, you know, and so I have on the one hand, the self-pity and the shame due to my performance righteousness. And on the other hand, the conflated ego due to my performance uh, righteousness. And so in both cases, you know, really, I've had to like talk with Neva, a couple close friends, like what does my response of the heart look like in either of these situations? And of course they both have the same, the same root. And um, so really coming back to, well, where is my life found? Where is my meaning, purpose, sense of worth, my righteousness found? It's in Christ, right? It's all in Christ. And um, the only real remedy for either great discouragement or great pride is in Christ. Um, And so that's been just, yeah, I mean, that's been a hard lesson. I f- you know, you feel like that's the kind of lesson you learn a lot in the Christian life, and then you learn it again and again at a deeper level, and that's just kind of what it's been uh, for me. So well, this season of all those other things being canceled or postponed or stopped because of the pandemic gives a really concentrated opportunity to learn those things. Yes. Do you know? And yeah. so, I I mean, one of, I was washing dishes recently, and I thought, Lord, are you in this? You know, like yeah. he's in the big moments, the times when you're on Oprah, but he's also in the pan washing right. and the daily school routines. You know, I just I, I it was like the Holy Spirit said to me, Jesus is in the mundane, not yeah. just the extraordinary. And I appreciate that as yeah. a, you know, a domestic professional. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I also think with everything going on in our culture right now and seeing the polarization in our culture and um, can be just, that's really discouraging to see as well. And I just, you know, I, it's hard to put a measure on this, but I have to imagine that's working its way into our pews and our churches. And um, I think another lesson I've been trying to learn during this time is um, really uh, trying to be even grow even more in encouraging others uh, sending encouraging notes and things and seeing the value of those encouraging words and recognizing that the truth, the truth is to be found where encouragement is found, encouragement, love, and those things are coming to us. And it's easy to internalize more of the discouragement that you see mm-hmm. and not internalize mm-hmm. the encouragement. And I've been trying to be better about that as well, whether myself trying to send along encouragements to others and telling people how grateful I am for them or just even just, again, remembering others encouragements to me and um that's also been a real lesson just with everything going on right now uh, it's been really hard so well thank you all for sharing let's uh jump into mark chapter six here which is a kind of a hard chapter to just like put a bow on what the central thrust is um tammy i think did have a good point earlier in the week she texted me and she said this is a great october or like halloween chapter because you have john the baptist getting beheaded which is creepy uh and then you have jesus walking on water and they think he's a ghost so this is a great october uh (laughs) halloween uh chapter to look at but yeah we have a lot going on here um we're not gonna be able to get to all of it but let's start we're gonna look at um we're going to look at here in the first uh six or seven verses with him coming to his hometown and we'll progress into seeing you know his commissioning of the disciples and then we have this interlude of john the baptist um and the feeding of the multitude, and then once again another boat incident. So a lot, a lot going on here. Let's try and start to make sense of some of it. So let's look at um, 
these opening verses uh, up through uh, verse six, where he goes to his hometown and we see that he's rejected in his hometown, right? And not just rejected, uh, but that um, the people there take offense at him, even in verses two and three. It says they take offense at him. So I want to hear from you all. What what exactly is going on here with his, the people in his hometown getting offended at Jesus? And uh, why did they find it so hard to believe in him? Let's start with you, Scott. Uh, what do you think is going on here with his hometown people being offended? Sure. So uh, obviously, uh, you know, growing up in front of these people, uh, they they know uh, who he was. Um, they think they know who he is and they just see him as a simple person, uh, nothing out of the ordinary. Uh, and then all of a sudden they're realizing that he has this wisdom uh, about him uh, that perhaps they had not identified beforehand. And um, and so they just, you know, to them, they're the, the boy who grew up as a carpenter's kid uh, who worked in his dad's shop. Um, and so there's probably a lot of sense of pride and, you know, how, how is how is this person shooting by me <laughs> and notoriety when we came from the same place? And, uh, you know, familiarity can uh, breed a, a sense of, um, you know, looking at somebody as, as not that great of a. Uh, an individual. Um, So there's a lot going on, but perhaps at least that. Yeah. Tammy, what do you think? Well, I, one of the places that I was reading suggested that he, they were marveling at him, but he was marveling at them too, Hmm. obviously for different reasons, but that their unbelief was um, shocking to Hmm. him. And, um, but really what, I, I don't have much more except that he was just they couldn't see anything divine about him there. I think they like us, sometimes our minds are closed to, you know, this is Mary's boy. Mm-hmm. It's Mary's boy. It's so and so's brother. So and so's, you know. Yeah. Um, but they didn't see anything beyond who they thought he already was. They knew everything they needed to know about him. They yeah. Charlie, do you think there's anything um, particularly insulting behind their comment of the carpenter, uh, the son of Mary. Um, what do you think? Probably. I mean, they, they're loaded with questions here. They're five questions in a row. Where, what, how is not this? And are not his sister who is with us? And they name his four brothers. Like, man, you're just, you're, you know, we know exactly. There's nothing special. You're a carpenter. Like, you're just blue collar regular joe you're you're just another jay we've got james and josie's and judas and you're just another jay in the list of the brothers who what's so special about you and you know so yeah yeah i mean um obviously very very small town uh i think estimates of few hundred maybe and uh so like you have to think that they probably remember Mary getting pregnant, right? Like there's probably rumors, right? I mean, you said, I mean, we know how people work. We know how gossip works, right? Rumors, tales, stories uh, about Mary, about this Jesus. Um, So I definitely think, you know, calling him a carpenter sort of maybe is a questioning of his authority. Like Mm -hmm. who is this to teach with authority? Isn't he just the carpenter? Like, isn't he just blue collar like us? Like where's his authority come from? But, I do think that there's something particularly insulting by calling him the son of Mary, right? And not 
bringing in Joseph mm-hmm. at all. Um, mm. I think the commentators I was looking at all said that it would probably be too strong to say that they were calling Jesus a bastard or something like that. Um, but that this is, uh, it's saturated with, uh, disgrace with insult, with perhaps even a hint of illegitimacy. Mm. Um, and so, because it's a, it's a patriarchal culture, right? Like you would have mm-hmm. referred to a son by his father, mm-hmm. not by his mother. And so by, skipping Joseph and going right to Mary, there's Mm. something insulting there, which again, you just have to imagine goes back to gossip, rumors, insults, but um, very degrading. I think it's a very degrading comment that he's getting um, from the people in his hometown. So um, they weren't taught to fear Jesus in a small town. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But Um, But I'm sorry if I'm getting ahead of you, but the next phrase that you ask, like, how was he able to heal, heal some? Mm-hmm. I love this phrase. One of the commentators I read said that some were, quote unquote, humbled enough by pain and mm. need. And um, I, I guess I just immediately thought that some of them were humbled, so desperate that, you know, yeah. they like the the woman who reached out and touched his garment. She forsook all the attention she knew she was going to, you know, get or other people in the future that we're going to read about in Mark. Yeah. They, there was a group of people he could heal because of their humility. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's, let's transition more to talk about that. I, I think that's one of the really, um, it's good. It, there's kind of two peculiar phrases, um, in Mark six. I think there's, there's that, like, what do you mean he, he couldn't, you know, uh, could not do any miracles here. That's a weird one. And then mm-hmm. the other one that's weird that we'll talk about uh, in probably 20 minutes or so is when he's walking on the water and says he intended to pass by them, right? And you're like, what? Like, why are you, Why does it say he tends to pass by? It's just like a hard, you're, you're trying to make sense of that, right? So there's kind of two of these in this chapter, but this is one of them. Yeah, so I, I love that idea that there, there was still some people humble enough. And I think that's an insightful comment in light of the fact um, that the word here. Uh, when it says they took offense at him, is the word that we normally also use for stumbling block, mm-hmm. uh, a scandal on, mm-hmm. right? And in Mark, that word is used eight times, uh, referring to obstructions that prevent others from coming to faith. Mm-hmm. So his hometown is an obstruction um, in some sense. So mm-hmm. so we have, you know, Tammy, I love that insight of there were some people humble enough, but what about uh, you, Scott or Charlie, anything to add there? Um, to this idea of he could not do any miracles, even though it does say he healed some people. What's what's the deal with that? So um, didn't do a whole lot of uh, commentary prep for this, uh, <laughs> but I did read Matthew Henry, and of course he always has something good to say. And uh, he had a good phrase. He, he said it, it was a strange, uh, strange wording, strange comment, as if the omnipotence of God was bound by human unbelief. And hmm. uh, so, it's, you know, it's obviously the Lord Jesus could do miracles if he wanted to do miracles. But we're told oftentimes that, you know, of course, the, a group of people came to him and, you know, what what sign will you do for us that we may believe you? <laughs> right. And Jesus rebukes him for asking signs and he says, none will be given to you except for the mm-hmm. sign of Jonah. And, and so, uh, you know, Jesus did signs so that people would see that this is the, the Messiah come. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and obviously in the old Testament, these things were told that different things would happen and accompany the coming of the Messiah and the King. Uh, and, and so it's not necessarily that Jesus was somehow his, his power is all of a sudden gone, but that there would be no use to do these signs because really yeah. they were there, you know, their, their desire was more for show, yeah. um, than, than really to, uh, to come to a knowledge of who this person and before them really was. Yeah. Yeah. I think to your point there, one image that popped into my head is, um, you know, an elf, right? Like Santa Claus and elf, his whole gig is powered by whether or not people believe in him. And he only has a certain amount of magic that he can work depending on how much people believe in him. And like, that's, absolutely not what this passage is saying about jesus right that his like his miracle meter is powered by what others think of him but i think it's kind of to, to scott's exact point there um that without faith without open hearts uh, without soft hearts ready to believe like miracles could actually have a negative effect on the people make their hearts even harder i think that's what we see with the disciples here in, a, in just a little bit it says their hearts are becoming hardened after the feeding of the multitude, right? And so, um, yeah, I think that's that's absolutely spot on there. Um, Charlie, any any last thoughts on on this? So keep going. That's good. Yeah. Um, let's look uh, then in this next uh, in verses seven to thirteen. Um, he commissions the twelve, and uh, he sends out the twelve. And this is the beginning of uh, another sandwich. Um, which it's a little bit harder to spot this one because the the, the bottom piece of bread <laughs> of the sandwich is only one verse. I think it's verse 30 where the disciples return. But what we're going to see is we're going to see uh, the commissioning of the 12. He sends out the 12. Uh, then it goes to John the Baptist and we get the whole backstory of what happened to John the Baptist, even though we already told what happened to him in chapter one. So now we're just getting the filler. And then verse 30 completes the sandwich with the disciples returning. Um, and so there's a thread here. We do have kind of a, a thread here of the commissioning, um, what happens to John and then the disciples, um, coming back. So, but let's start here with verses seven to 13, which is him sending out the 12. Uh, what is Jesus preparing his followers for? And what lesson do we need to learn from that today? So what is he preparing his followers for? And what lessons do we need to learn from that today. So Tammy, what do you think? Well, he's sending them out and he's not with them, correct? That's right. So isn't there a um, lesson in this is going to be what it's like very soon? I mean, when he dies and uh, returns to heaven, they're going out and they're not going to have he, he's not going to be doing miracles for them to watch. They're going to be the ones carrying on the work yeah um one of the one of the things that i read it was beautiful to me was that he's telling them to carry on the work of the covenant that he made with abraham hmm. like you know we're going way back but then there's a there's a thread that i'm being told to do the same thing too as yeah. my as a child of God, like mm -hmm. my my job is as his ambassadors to continue the work of the covenant that he made with Abraham. Doesn't that just make you excited? Yeah. And humbled, definitely. But the other thing I love is that he called them before they see him walk on the water in their heart of heart after the 5,000 are fed, assuming this is chronological. 
Like yeah. he didn't wait until, okay, guys, you're ready. Now I'm going to send you, you right. know, they had so much to learn. Oh, so much, <laughs> so much still to learn. Yeah. But he sent yeah. them out and, um, and as he does with us, he's so patient yeah. and his plan is, you know, I mean, there's lots yeah. of things I have written here for what we can learn from it, but that's, um, yeah, that's good. Charlie, what do you think? What, what's uh, sort of, um, you know, Tammy hit on preparing his followers for his absence, um, and the mission that they would have, but. Yeah, what what is he preparing them for? And I think she nailed it. I, you know, we, it's the great commission is coming, and Jesus will uh, be leaving them, and they're being sent out, and but they're also given here the powers that he has, so they're they're able to cast out demons, uh, anoint with oil many who are sick, and healed them. It's just one of the few uh, references to anointed with oil that we you know see in James 5 with now that given to the elders and to pray and I still think we should do that um but I don't I don't see the um ability mm. of healing uh the success of healings as we're seeing in the gospels it seems like they're pretty successful most of the time they have a few and Jesus is upset at their unbelief but they are sent out and it's really I kind of see it as engaging in a battle. There is a real battle to be to be fought. And you think of like a military. Jesus is bringing his, his, his kingdom. Satan has a full court press with all the demons. And it is a full-on battle. And there's much more demonic activity that you're seeing in the Gospels that you, than you would see uh, today, per se, or at least where Gospel penetration has occurred. So yeah. uh, he's... He's, I kind of see it as, you know, here's the recruits. They've gone through some basic training and now they're, they're being sent into their first taste of, of battle. Yeah. And I, I didn't compare the language exactly, but I'm pretty sure, um, um, you know, a lot of the language here about what he sent them out to do to have authority over unclean spirits and, and so on. Um, I'm pretty sure it's sim- similar language to what he said he called them to in chapter three. I think in chapter three, it talks about casting out demons and, and healing. I don't have that right in front of me, but I think we clearly see that this is now like him sending out for them to do what he called them to, you know, in chapter three, right? Some of the work that he would, that they were called to in chapter three. Um, Scott, do you have anything to add? I cede my time to the moderator. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> Robert's rules of orders do not apply here, Scott. Um <laughs> Yeah, I thought there were a couple as I was digging into this more. You really, I think, you know, both both Tammy and Charlie hit on this, like um, the mission that we're called to and really how unprepared the disciples were for it and how unprepared we often feel for. It. I mean, one thing that stood out to me that I hadn't really seen before as much was even just that he tells them to basically take the bare essentials. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, he tells them to. um Take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money, uh, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. So like bare essentials. And I think the lesson there is like almost intentionally not being impressive, right? Intentionally stripped of anything that might give you earthly comfort or the impression that you are an impressive messenger. But really it's a lesson for them uh, to rely on the Lord. And it's a message to others that this is a simple message we're not trying to impress you 
right? Very simple message of the gospel that salvation is found in Christ, which, it, and I say it's simple, not to say it's not profound, but it's simple and it's, um, you know, not for the learned, not for the rich. Um, but then you also have this, you know, some will accept you, right? He says, uh, stay there until you depart from there. So some will accept you and allow you to stay. Uh, but if any place will not receive you and not listen to you, then, you know, shake off the dust from your feet and keep going. And I think there's a lesson there to expect rejection, um, but also the kind of the comfort of knowing like, yeah, people are going to reject you and it's not going to be because of you. Right now, there may be sometimes where we're just a jerk uh, and people reject us. But at the end of the day, like the gospel, God, uh, through the power of the gospel, he saves some and others are repelled by it. And that's just what we should expect. Right. We should expect that some will receive it and some will um, reject it. And so you have this. uh, um, Yeah, preparedness for that, prepared, being prepared for that. Uh, I thought one commentator captured this really well. Like every now and then you kind of strike a, you're going through commentaries and it's kind of very heady, but then you get kind of this like heart of gold quote. And uh, this one commentator said this, this is James Edwards. He says, the sending of reluctant disciples into mission is on the face of it completely mistaken. Uncomprehending and ill-prepared disciples nevertheless typify believers in every age and place who are sent out by the Lord of the harvest. No matter how much exegesis, theology, and counseling one has studied, one is never, quote, prepared for ministry. A genuine call to ministry always calls us to that for which we are not adequately prepared. It is only in awareness of such that the Christian experiences the presence and promise of Jesus Christ and learns to be, learns to depend not on human capabilities, but on the one who calls and in the power of the proclamation to authenticate itself. I who thought that was, was that? great. Was that, that was James Edwards in good. his pillar commentary. I thought that was really good. And I guess I'm just now realizing that that goes back to what I said I've been struggling with during quarantine, mm. right? Of like not prepared, just n- like nothing, no seminary education, nothing could have prepared for for ministry during covid right um and just increasing dependence on the lord mm-hmm. so yeah i think there's a lot of encouragement and good lesson here and just what it means to be a disciple in any age yeah um, what you read flies in the face of the you got this mentality yes. yeah absolutely <laughs> absolutely it does uh well let's keep going here through working our way through another one of these sandwiches here that we've been seeing kind of just about every chapter in mark uh and we get into john's um John's death, right? Which again, we, we heard about in chapter one. And now all of a sudden we're getting this really long backstory um, kind of tying together. Really, I think, um, you know, I think uh, let's just kind of jump to the conclusion here for a second. I think that the common thread here is that John is not only foreshadowing what happens to Jesus. And of course, there's a lot of ties here, you know, him dying at the hands of, you know, the state and, and all of that. And, um, but I think, there's not, it's not only foreshadowing then what will happen to Christ, but I think there's also a foreshadowing of what disciples ought to expect, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because we have the commission and they return after this. And of course, we know that many of the disciples faced what the kind of death that, that John faced. Um, there are only two passages in Mark, extensive passages in Mark that are not about Jesus. They're both about John. <laughs> so we have an extensive, extensive, you know, sort of prologue with John in chapter one, where he prepares the way, um, the forerunner for Christ. And now we have his death account, which is kind of the forerunner for what happens to Jesus in a way. Um, so 
what might be some of the reasons um, for the prominence of this narrative in Mark? Like, why do you think Mark spends so much time with so much of the history with Herod and um, his wife and the daughter? Why do you think we there's so much spent here? What is Mark trying to get across? We'll start with you, uh, Scott. <laughs> you ceded your time, so I did I'm giving already. it back. All right. I'm giving it back. All right. Well, I will answer by a non-answer. Um, I don't know why he's taking so much time. And um, uh, yeah, I, I, I got to say, I, I uh, didn't have time enough to study as to what commentators would, would determine why is Mark giving so much time here. Use your gut. Um, use my gut. My as gut a, is to, to turn it over to Pastor Bale. When so. it says, uh, you know, we're going to get into this, but when it says later that Jesus had compassion, it's talking about from his gut. All right, so I want you to use your gut on this, Scott. Oh, my. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Why. So who was the audience that would be reading this years later? Like, why would he find it important for them to be reading? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, we've kind of said that the primary audience was probably Gentile Christians. Okay. Um, so perhaps exposing... Part of it could have been exposing the folly of Gentile leaders, um, perhaps. Charlie, what do you think? Well, I, I certainly think that the reading audience would have taken comfort in knowing that um, if we think we can escape persecution, and persecution was getting ready to come upon the church, and it was being, and it was coming from the hand of the Romans, and here you have. Herod himself and bringing persecution and uh, down on someone who was wildly popular. And I, I, I think the writer's given us this details because it really happened. This is really an amazing story of twist. Sometimes how God works through the twisting of providence, like you're not going to believe how this actually happened. And what you have here in these two stories is a complete contrast. So we have two feasts, and you're going to see what a real feast look like looks like with Jesus. Mm-hmm. And I just love mm-hmm. the word green in here. It, it's it's telling us that he had him sit down on the green grass to remind you Psalm 23. Mm-hmm. He's the shepherd, and he's mm-hmm. going to feed you, even though he's broken over his close friend who's died and he's grieving and he's hurting he wants to be away and and in desolation but he loves the people and he feeds them and that's what he does for us but here you have the flip side is is this worldly pomp i'll give you up to half the kingdom Mm -hmm. and what do they want is somebody's head on a platter and it's all about holding grudges and um, dealing with their sin and how to hide their sin and their shame, and they're not able to deal with their living in immorality, and so off with his head. And you just see the complete contrast in kingdoms, mm. and Jesus is living in both, and we live in both, and it just gets us to see what's really important. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly, it's kind of reads like a really strange soap opera right like like you have to imagine that Herod's Herod's family his family tree like man you could make a 
Netflix <laughs> drama on that family, right? Like that's just quite the yeah. family. And it kind of it's it's you may one have of just these planted things. a seed for somebody. It may be, <laughs> um, but it's kind of one of these things where it's like you just can't you can't you can't write this kind of mm-hmm. thing. You know, I've been um, reading, uh, been getting into Hamilton so much, and so I've been reading um, Ron Chernow's biography on Hamilton, and I recently got to a part where um, uh, it talked about. Washington finding out about Benedict Arnold, right? And his plot to have treason on the Continental Army. And um, it was just, it's such a wild story. I know you're kind of a history guy, I don't know if you know this, but like Benedict Arnold gets, gets found out and runs away and leaves Washington and Hamilton at his home. And all of a sudden they start hearing the wife like screaming in hysterics and all this stuff. And they go upstairs to find her and she appears to be out of her mind. Right. And she like she's cuddling her baby and she thinks that like Washington and Hamilton are there to kill the baby. And so she's like all this hysterics and all this stuff. And Washington and Hamilton like spend the weekend there trying to calm her down. And Hamilton's writing letters back to his wife talking about how in dire straits this woman is and all these things. And so they eventually decide like we can't fix her. Let's send her back to her family. And she gets back home. And it was all a ruse to give Benedict Arnold more time to get away. And she fooled, completely fooled Washington and Hamilton, like two of the smartest guys. And I texted my buddy who's into this. And I was like, how did, how, like, this is such a wild story. And he said to me, often history is much better than fiction. And I thought that was such a good comment. And it kind of just reminds me here, like, you can't make this up. And like, this is kind of all these stories where like, history is better than any fiction you could come up with. And of course, the gospels as a whole are true of that. Like, this is better than any fiction. Uh, you can come up with and the story is just is just a wild story uh, such a wild story so um one more comment from a commentator before we move on i thought this was just again one of these funny line he said um that this is a bitter commentary on the inability of tyrants to tolerate tolerate righteous individuals a fact no less true today than in john's day the one whom jesus called the greatest man born of woman is sacrificed to a cocktail wager Hmm. sobering the last part again read that the one whom jesus called the greatest man born of woman is sacrificed to a cocktail wager wow that was a really good line it makes you really wrestle too here with herod who's perplexed and this idea of perplexed is like he's torn he can't decide Hmm. like i i'm he's enthralled by jesus he's he's intrigued and yet he's living in sin and so he 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 likes to hear him, but oh, this this hurtful thing. And so he's really he's going back and forth. He's kind of waffling, and you, it greatly grieved him. But he he had given his word, and just as as Pilate, you know, could be compassionate to a point. Once everything was at stake, Pilate is going to turn on Jesus. Mm-hmm. Well, same with Herod with John the Baptist. It's the similar that ultimately the mass of people or significant people will turn the tide of a leader and they're more enslaved to the praises of people than they are to God. Hmm. Yeah. And you know, Herod didn't really solve his problem because right. here he is thinking that John the Baptist has been risen from the dead. <laughs> so right. he's gotten rid of John the Baptist, but he still thinks he's out there. So he's haunting him. See, right. October. <laughs> Uh, or even, you know, this kind of, there's a kind of the connection of maybe it's Elijah. And of course there's some similarities with Elijah's story with Jezebel, uh, sort of, there's some parallels here with that. So, um, well, let's keep going. There's, there's a lot in this next section here. Um, 
with Jesus having compassion on the crowds and then the feeding of the multitude. And there's a lot, a lot, a lot we could talk about. But I really want to focus in on verse 34, uh, where it says that, um, let me pull this up just so I make sure I'm reading it uh, word for word. Um, verse 34, when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I really want to focus on that last part, sheep without a shepherd. So, Scott, <laughs> uh, softball here for you. <laughs> Keep him coming. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what does it tell us about ourselves that Jesus sees us as sheep? What does it tell us about ourselves that Jesus sees us as sheep? Sure. So uh, sheep, obviously, everybody has heard many, many times, especially if you've uh, been in a church that preaches sermons, how sheep are not uh, to be envied for their wisdom uh, and intelligence. So, uh, yeah, it's it really kind of it's not really a, a praise to our abilities. Um, you know, we're we're utterly dependent upon which direction we should go when, you know, mm-hmm. sheep, you know, they got to be told when to eat basically what when and what to do at all given time. Uh, they can't protect themselves. They don't know enough when danger is coming. Uh, so, you know, we are like sheep. I mean, Jesus is saying that we can't do anything for ourselves uh, and we are wanderers uh, apart from him uh, without direction, without any ability to help ourselves. Yeah. Um, so we're a We're a ship on the sea, basically, without without a rudder, yeah. <laughs> susceptible to anything. Yeah. That's good. Tammy, you want to add anything to that? No, I definitely see myself and I um, almost find comfort in the fact that Jesus called all of them that, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not just me. I'm in this with a lot of other people. Yeah, Um, I'm just grateful for the shepherd, really. When when you start thinking about sheep, it just almost gets laughable. If you know, if you start, why sheep, Lord? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I don't want to, um, I think everything that both of you said, you know, sort of about, uh, our inabilities and our weaknesses as being sheep, of course, you know, uh, I mean, uh, shepherds today, even, you know, we'll tell you there's kind of good books written from shepherds perspectives and YouTube videos and stuff that like sheep will follow each other off a cliff before they use their own like common sense, right? They will follow each other to their doom off a cliff without even thinking. Um, so sheep are not smart animals, but I would like to think there is a bit of a tenderness here, but especially with, you know, he's being moved to compassion mm-hmm. on such sheep. Um, but I, I also thought, uh, thinking about this, you know, our sheepish, sheepish tendencies is that uh, being sheep, we human beings uh, need a guide and a defender to show us our way. We need someone else to defend us. We need a guide to show us our way. And so much what's happening around us, so much of the cultural movement all around us is really um, playing into our sheepish tendencies and confusing all of us uh, from following our shepherd. I've been listening to um, a podcast recently. It's a really good podcast. Uh, uh, Not as better good than as ours. One. No, it's better than ours. It's better than ours. <laughs> uh, I would I would recommend it. It's I think it's called This Cultural Moment uh, by John Mark Comer and Mark Sayers, uh, two pastors. Uh, one in Portland, one is actually in uh, Australia. But they talk a lot about what's going on in this culture. And uh, I think it was their season three, episode one podcast. They had a really good conversation about the deconstruction we see in our culture, the kind of this idea of like 
tearing down tradition and structure and institution, the suspicion of authority, the suspicion of institution, the suspicion of the traditional way of doing things, kind of the old way of doing things. And so kind of this impulse to like tear things down, right? To tear things down. Um, and so you even see that, of course, uh, in the church, right? Which there was the emergent church movement for a while that was kind of focused on that, that kind of died. But now you kind of even have this ex-evangelical movement of kind of deconstructing evangelicalism. And I think a lot of that is because young Christians are struggling, you know, more, more and more history coming out about kind of the complicated and often dirty history of evangelicalism and some of its leaders, uh, not knowing how to deal with that. And so kind of just ditching the whole thing instead of, you know, really working out faith for themselves. And so what starts with, you know, maybe a good impulse. So for example, it's a good thing to deconstruct structures that lead to abuse, right? That we see in our churches. That's a good thing. But I think for a lot of young Christians that it doesn't stop there and all of a sudden it becomes deconstructing every point of orthodoxy. And now it's like, oh, that's serious talking for some reason. Uh, but now it's kind of in to like question everything and not really have a firm, a firm place of belief. Um, and the problem with that, with all of that, that we're seeing, especially again in, in younger people, millennials, Gen Z, is as, as our structures, as our institutions, as our authorities get deconstructed, we're losing the places where we normally would find our identity and our meaning and our sense of purpose. And so really, I think this is just, again, promoting all of our sheepish tendencies and, and we are taking away all of the things that ought to point us to our guide, to, um, to Christ, right? Like, so by questioning everything, we are distancing ourselves from our, our shepherd. And again, some of those tendencies are good. Um, but when it becomes to the point of um, taking us away from from Christ, and I thought the one of the guys on the podcast, Mark Sayers, he had a, a good comment. He said, um, what we're seeing today is much like the gig economy, right? Where, you know, people find that just go from job to job, Uber to Uber, you know, Uber Eats delivery to this, to that, to kind of make money. He said, we, what we're finding now is we're in a culture of gig identity, of just like going from one thing to the next because there's nothing firm anymore that can be trusted. Um, and so I think it's really important for us as Christians to come back to again and again that Christ is our shepherd, right? Like we can deconstruct the unhealthy things in our society, but we can't deconstruct Christ, right? He is, he is our firm identity. He is our shepherd. He is our defender. He is our guide. He is where we find our meaning and purpose in our life and our everything, is found in him. So, um, sheep need a shepherd. So Charlie, what, um, what does it tell us then in this passage about Christ, um, that he is our shepherd? Well, I think a couple of things for us to think through. One is that Jesus is our shepherd all through scripture. And that in the old Testament is clearly portrayed as, as God as our shepherd. Um, and then the story ends. I mean, in Revelation, he, we're told that Jesus will shelter them with his presence. Um, and that's us. And it says, They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not make them, nor any scorching heat. And it says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're still sheep, even in, in glory, we're still, um, and Jesus is portrayed not only as a shepherd, but he's the lamb. 
And so he takes this very analogy, and he's the slaughtered lamb. And he became weaker than us and weak to the point of, of death. And um, so just the humility of Jesus um, to save dumb sheep like us, he had to be uh, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Yeah. I love here, we kind of joked about it a minute ago, but I do love this compassion. Like this is probably one of the key verses for me for how I understand Jesus's character in the gospels is this verse with compassion on the crowds, like sheep without a shepherd. Like I come back to this, you know, this might be, you know, Keller always comes back to Luke 15. This might be my Luke 15, like in my ministry. I just feel like I come back to this all the time that he has, he's sheep without a shepherd. They're harassed. Right. And he has compassion on them. This word here could literally mean like it's it's a verb f- form of a noun that could like literally mean like entrails, right? Your inward parts. And of course, we know in the Bible that often like physical parts of our body are used for psychological or emotional reality. So the heart, right, is often the inner disposition of the person. Well, here, this is the same thing. He's moved from his inward parts uh, to have, you know, pity and love towards these people. So uh, really a powerful image. So Bringing this home, um, Tammy, we'll start with you. What does it mean to you? What does it mean to you that Jesus is your shepherd? I need your help finding what chapter this is in, in John. But it talks about Jesus being our shepherd and he holds them in the palm of his hand. So in my testimony, I shared that I struggled with just like assurance of my salvation. And I I can't remember where that verse is. John 10. Um, But it talks about that Jesus says he knows them by name. He knows his sheep by name mm-hmm. and he holds them in the palm. So if you hold out your palm, he doesn't have me on the end of his finger ready to flick me off when I mess <laughs> up, but I'm gripped in the mm. palm of his hand. And, uh, and then it says, none can take him. None can mm. take them. Can you read it for me? I'm looking for it. Right oh, the okay. palm exactly. is not necessarily in the ESV. Oh, but, uh, <laughs> well, in the KJV, none shall, none shall snatch. Yes. None, none can be snatched out of yeah. his hand. Yeah. Okay. So that's what I see is that I can't be taken away. And yeah. I've, I've, I've shared that with my boys too, that, you know, they, they are safe in yes. the flock of Jesus, basically. It's 27 to 30. Oh man, I was off by 10 verses. Verse 29, yeah. chapter 10. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. Coming on the heels of my sheep hear my voice. Yes. Yeah. 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 So that's that definitely is um, one of those truths that I go back to when I need to be reminded of the love of Jesus for me. Scott. Sure. I mean, pretty similar. Just, uh, you know, the fact that the Lord is tender towards me uh, and cares for me. yeah. You know, it talks about how they were trying to get away. The disciples had come back, you know, tired from going out and doing what the Lord had sent them out to do. Uh, and, you know, they get in a boat to get away from the crowd and they can't get away from the crowd because they get to the next shore and here the crowd comes again. And, you know, like you said, Ben, Jesus has this compassion and his move to go out and he begins to teach them. And uh, so I'm, I'm just thankful that I have a savior that that loves me. He doesn't grow tired of me. Mm. 
Um, you know, he, he never slumbers. He never is weary of watching over and, and keeping me. Yeah. Uh, and he's in control. Uh, he's, he's there's the shepherd also to protect. Yeah. Yeah. Such a powerful metaphor and, um, image truth, not even a metaphor. It's a, it's a reality. Um, I think I shared this last week that I'm just finding more and more that no matter what I, you know, I say this, you know, this is one of my favorite verses, all of that, but my tendency is still to view Jesus as sort of being monotone, unemotional, (laughs) uh, very just like stoic and, um, more and more just really trying to, to see Jesus as he is, as the shepherd moved to compassion, um, for us. So, uh, let's look now at this. We have another one of these boat boat stories. Um, hard to keep track of some of these. <laughs> uh, so we had before where he calmed the storm, you know, and they were amazed that he could calm the storm. Well, now we have this interesting um, sort of scene uh, scene transition. It seems like at the beginning here of um, maybe verse forty five um, that uh, you know it says he immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go before him. And after he take, took leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. Like Jesus needs some space, right? After the crowds and they had pressed upon him and he sends the disciples away. He um, gets away from the crowds, gets away from the disciples, gets alone to pray, which is something that we see happening in the Gospels a lot. Um, so he's up on his own, perhaps recuperating, praying, uh, and the disciples get out into this storm. Uh, I think this is the fourth watch of the night, which I think is roughly like 3 a.m. or something like that. Um, so what, um, what is his purpose in going out on the lake? And why does it say, uh, in verse 48 that he was about to pass them by? So why did, what was his purpose? And why does it say that he was about to pass them by? Um, sorry for the phone interruptions today, everybody. (laughs) I think that's the third one. Uh, Tammy, let's go to you. What What's going on with passing them by? I really don't know. I don't have a good answer, except that when he walked on the water before it stilled, and maybe he was um, going to still the water, he might have been reminding them of his presence. Yeah. I did not find a good commentary quote, gold nugget for this one. It just so happens that maybe I could jump in at this point. Thank you, Scott. <laughs> we rehearsed that. So Matthew Henry didn't say this. So if you all out there do not agree with me, don't slander Matthew Henry. Um, so kind of what I, as I was thinking about this, um, it's kind of like when Jesus sent out the disciples, you know, not too long ago to go out two by two. Um, they were out there on their own, as it were. And of course, we know that Jesus was always with them. Um, and so here he's sending them out into the sea. Like he's not in the boat like he was, uh, that other memorable time when he calms the sea and, um, not that that necessarily helped them too much with their, their faith. Cause they were obviously still very concerned, but, uh, he, just like he sent them out two by two. Now he's sending them over, uh, in the boat all alone and he is not with them. Uh, and so as, as I read, he was about to pass them by. It's, it's kind of like, you know, I sent you all out on the boat. I am with you. I'm, I'm out here walking on the water, but I'm still with you. Even though I was on the land prior to my coming and starting to walk by the boat, which is struggling. Mm-hmm. Jesus is just walking across the water. The wind is not keeping him back. It doesn't say where 
Jesus was struggling to get by the boat. So just he was walking along and and it said that they were having a really tough time of it. Uh, the head headway is painfully uh, or it was the making headway painfully. So there was a, a severe struggle for the boat to make it yeah. across the 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 water. And here Jesus is just strolling along and, and kind of the way I look at it. And, and I don't know if this is right to draw from the text, but uh, Jesus was perhaps fine to walk by because he was actually with them, even if he walked by them mm-hmm. and to test their faith that, you know, can Jesus send us across the water and still actually protect us mm-hmm. if he's not in the stern and bow yeah. the boat? Mm-hmm. So, and that's Scott's commentary. And so I thank you, Scott. Stop. <laughs> yeah, I think that's, um, you know, I'd seen a couple uh, interpretations uh, of this passage. I think that kind of gets at one of them. And um, yeah, Charlie, what do you think? I have, I have my thoughts here that I'm reserving until. Sure. Well, the interesting thing is this word here for pass by is a pretty rich word in, in, in the Greek and in the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And a couple of the big places in Scripture where God uh, shows up when Moses asked to see his glory. In Exodus thirty three nineteen, we're told that God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. Same Greek word, it's per erkomai. And I'll proclaim my name before you, and I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy. And while my glory passes by, I'll put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand until I've passed by. So the same imagery. And then in Exodus 34, where he does go by, he says, the Lord passed before him. So it's the same word it's used several times here, and he proclaims his name. And it's the same word that shows up in 1 Kings 19 with Elijah, and how the Lord, it says, passed by, and it was a great and strong wind, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And, you know, after the wind, there was an earthquake, and, you know, and then the Lord's in the still small voice. But then in Job 9, yeah. when Job is, is laying out one of his any complaints with his so-called friends, um, he's talking, and he says, who alone has stretched out the heaven and in the Greek, it's, and walks on the sea as on firm ground. And here we have the answer in John 6. And, and what he says is, Job says, is, behold, he passes by me. He goes by, and I see him not. So same imagery, and Job is disappointed that God eludes me. And Jesus is going to show them his glory. And then he wants to say to them, Hey guys, it's okay. It's me. It's me. Mm-hmm. Take heart. Ego e me. Here I am. It's it's me. I'm with you. And we're seeing just the glory of Jesus that he is the he is Yahweh of the Old Testament that is hiding Moses and putting his hand and here he's it'd be incredible if he if he swam out there, <laughs> you know, to them. That would be amazing. But instead, he just walks out there, and this is no sandbar, you know. This is no power boat, or he's on his bare feet, you know. This is Jesus walking on the water in the midst of a storm. Yeah, yeah, that was um, pretty close to my thought on this, and um, I think it's I think it's rich with with that Old Testament kind of allusion there to Exodus thirty three and thirty four and Job nine. Um, and then I think even if you, so, if you take that, that I think makes a pretty strong case for uh, 
the ego Emmy Amy here, right? When he says take heart, the ESV I think just translates it, take heart, it is I, mm-hmm. but it's literally take heart, I am, which is what he says in John 8, right? Before Abraham was, I am, uh, taking the that divine name for himself. And um, I think there's fairly strong reason perhaps to interpret it that way in light of <laughs> seeing this passing by in that, under that uh, kind of heading. So, um yeah, so then it says, um, kind of coming here to the end uh, now, but in 51 and 52, uh, it says that uh, their hearts were hardened, right? After the, even after the feeding of the 5,000 and seeing him uh, walk on um, walk on water, and uh, it says they were astounded, but they did not understand about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Um, so what common character qualities prevented uh, the disciples from really understanding who Christ was, what the feeding of the 5,000 meant. Um, What are the character qualities here that they have in common and how can we avoid that? So uh, Tammy, start with you again. Well, um, they they weren't seeing Jesus in a uh, spiritual in a divine way, like it was kind of similar to the people in Nazareth, how mm-hmm. they looked, they saw Mary's son. Mm-hmm. And um, so I know the disciples are his 12 that he chose and he continues with them, right? He doesn't mm-hmm. leave them here, but he, they're not seeing him uh, for, there's no spiritual perceptiveness. Is that a word right now? They don't see him in the full as their full savior yet um so that's part of what i think the hardness of heart is they you know they didn't want the storm right they like i don't want i want my comfort yeah and so they wanted the path to be easy and they wanted to go take a nap because they were tired from their um, mission journeys yeah well you're certainly right there i think with even going back to his hometown while it never explicitly says i don't think there that they were hardened in heart, but there are other times where similar opposition mm-hmm. is described as hardness in, of heart in in Mark. I didn't write it down, but I think it's in chapter four and uh, fourteen, maybe. I'd forget um, forget I had it, but anyways. But there's else other places where his opposition is described as being hard mm-hmm. in heart, and I definitely think um, the disciples really at this point in the narrative, even though they had been sent out even to do works in his name, mm-hmm. are being compared to those who oppose him right they're being compared to in a way to those who oppose him because they're hard in heart um um, faith has not yet penetrated Mm -hmm. to the deepest recesses um of their heart so scott what do you what do you think yeah so i mean they're clearly still and and will continue to do so even after this they're still struggling with doubt uh so not you know much like what's already been said, um, is this really who, you know, is Jesus really who he claims himself to be? Um, you know, we get to walk around with him a lot. Um, they didn't see him grow up, but there is a level of familiarity that they're, they're getting. And, uh, it's, you know, back in the other episode in the boat, um, you know, when they saw that the wind ceased, it says that they were filled with fear and it's like, they get these they get these glimpses where they almost get knocked, you know, conscious almost and realize, oh my gosh, this is, 
this 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 must be you know this must be the great i am who is this that can do this and then they just slide back into kind of doubt and yeah. and just almost a familiarity breeding complacency yeah. uh and, and unbelief and well you know that was a really cool thing that just happened but you know, well, it's Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I think they're they're still struggling with doubt, and they didn't receive the signs by faith. You know, we've re- talked about receiving. You know, the uh, Mark four and, and this the word being preached and received by faith. They're they're not some of these signs are are hitting the disciples not in the ways that they should. Um, almost like the people in the town. You know, they're not re- being received by faith at least always, and and so they they have the the loaves of bread being distributed. I mean, who can do that? And, and well, I guess that just, that wasn't like a, an A miracle. That was kind of like a C miracle. And maybe, you know, maybe there's a number of people that could do something like that, but not, you know, not, not to the level of it being God, uh, the God man. And so, you know, I, I think they're, they're seeing these things and they're, they still have these doubts and they're not receiving these signs, uh, as faith, yeah. you know, by faith. So, yeah. Charlie, how can we avoid being hardened in heart? Well, I think a passage like this kind of makes us beg the question, how much are we like this? You know, it's easy to believe when everything's going well, but all of a sudden now when we're hungry and there's a huge crowd and it's impossible to feed them, now what do we do? This is, we're out of our element or we're out on the water and we're straining at the oars, you know, and, and, you know, life has all of a sudden gotten really complicated, a big storm. And it's so I think this is really meant for us to really think about like, okay, they didn't get it. And yet Jesus keeps showing up and showing his glory to them. And their lack of understanding is is akin to a deeper issue of their hearts. And so are our hearts compliant? Um, I think we need to pray. Um I've been one of I've been listening to Kevin DeYoung a lot and his message on Mark six. This was a tremendous message that he gave. But I love at the beginning of his messages, he prays through Psalm one nineteen. So before every sermon, he prays a portion of Psalm one nineteen, and all of Psalm one nineteen is a prayer of taking the word and Lord, may we be lovers of the word and really understand it, and may it. Uh, turn our hearts and our eyes away from vanity and our love of this world. And anyway, I just really think we need to pray more and ask God to show us our sin and our hardness of heart. Yeah. Yeah. One, uh, one thing that Alan Cole said was that smallness of faith and hardness of heart were two of the repeated sins of the mm. disciples in this and smallness of faith is the failure to remember God's working in the past and apply that knowledge of his Mm. nature to my present problem. Mm. And I love that because that's kind of where we need to be reminded. Mm -hmm. We, that's why we need to go to church every Sunday Mm -hmm. to reboot. What, what, what Mm. is it? What do Mm -hmm. I believe? And who is God and how does he, you know, how does he fit here in my present problem? Because we all, we all have problems. We're all going to be, in yeah. storms. That's a great comment. And that sort of transitions well, right into what I was thinking on this, which is, you know, with faith, I think sometimes we can think faith as being 
passive, something that happens to us, mm-hmm. or maybe just like a, something that in, in the past I put my faith in Christ, right? But as you said, like it's a what God has done in the past and applying it to my present, which is an ongoing mm-hmm. application of faith, right? We need to we need to apply our faith again and again and fight for faith again and again in the midst of new situations, new circumstances, life upheaval, all this going on. So it can't just be merely passive. It has to be an active, you know, I, I've been recently thinking of it in, in my fight for faith, right? It has to be uh, ongoing. And and uh, I was reminded of this um, William Gurnall quote, uh, Puritan. Uh, he said this, uh, he said, faith is not lazy, does not incline the soul to sleep, but to work. It sends the creature not to bed to snort away his time in ease and sloth, <laughs> but into the field. It's a good Puritan, mm. good Puritan way to say it, but active, right? Mm. Faith propels us to being active and first and foremost in applying our faith again and again. And um, I think as we keep that as our disposition, it can uh, prevent us from growing hardened in heart as the disciples did. So, well, I think that brings us to the end of Mark 6. And uh, really glad you all listening with us. Uh, would appreciate if you would share the podcast or share feedback. Uh, rate us on Apple Podcasts if you're listening there. That helps us out as well. And uh, we enjoy doing these. And We'll be back again next week for uh, Mark chapter seven. So take care, you all, and uh, love you. And until next time.